this morning. We have been speaking about the great transitions of the Bible. And one of the most ironic remarks I hear about the Bible from time to time is when somebody says that the Bible is a book of pious, well-meaning advice that is not relevant to or reflective of the real world. It's at that point that I conclude they've never really read the Bible. Anybody knows how many messed up families there are in Genesis? Let me give you a quick review. Cain is jealous of his brother Abel and kills him. Lamech introduces polygamy to the world. Noah, the most righteous man of the generation, gets drunk and curses his grandson. Lot, when his home is surrounded by the residents of Sodom, who want to violate his visitors, offers instead that they have sex with his daughters. Later on, his daughters get him drunk, get impregnated by him, and we're told that Lot is the most righteous man in Sodom. Right now, I'm thinking that I might make the Hall of Fame. Abraham plays uh, favorites between his sons Isaac and Ishmael. They're estranged from each other. Isaac plays favorites between his sons Jacob and Esau. They're bitter enemies for 20 years. Jacob plays favorites between Joseph and his 11 other sons. They want to kill them and, and end up selling them into slavery. Their marriages are filled with disasters. Abraham has sex with his wife's servant, sends her and the boy off into the wilderness at his wife's request. Isaac and Rebekah fight over which of the boys is going to get the blessing. Jacob marries two wives and ends up when they get into a fertility contest, first with both their maids and concubines as well. His firstborn Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Another son, Judah, sleeps with his daughter-in-law when they are, and when they are, she disguises herself as a prostitute. She did this because she was childless since her first two husbands, Judah's sons, were so wicked that God killed them both and Judah, and Judah reneged on his obligations to her. Uh, these are not the Waltons. Uh, these are badly messed up people. They need Dr. Phil, Dr. Laura, Dr. Ruth, Dr. Spock, Dr. Zeus. Uh, they need somebody or they're sure to wind up on Jerry Springer, you know. Uh, Anybody here feeling a little better about their family today? <laughs> Thanks, I see that hand back there. That's good. The question is, why does the writer of Genesis include all this stuff? Why is all this material here? In a way, these are kind of horrible stories. Even Genesis 34 is the story of Jacob's daughter Dinah, where she's raped by a man named Shechem, and Jacob is passive. He does nothing. His sons Levi and Simeon respond by suckering the men of Shechem to get in the, in the city to be circumcised. And then they murder them all and plunder the city. The behavior of all the men in this story is a disgrace. But the writer of Genesis never says, here's the bad guy. Here's the moral of the story. And lots of us are wondering as we read through this stuff, what in the world is going on? What's up with all these stories? Well, to start with, the author of Genesis is not morally confused. Remember, the Pentateuch is also the source of the Ten Commandments of the Law. And it is the most morally influential writing in the history of the ancient world. It is the work of, of a genius. And the, the writer of Genesis is perfectly capable of saying, You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. And he does say those things. He also tells stories because stories force you to think, I, I believe anyway. 
When you read stories, you have to develop discernment and you, you have to apply judgment. These are often the kind of the moral case study, quite complex, with real people in all their ambiguity. And I think the tendency of the human race is to try to hide our sin. It's to pretend it's not so bad, to, to minimize it, to pretend that our depravity is at all cases manageable. But it's not so. So the writer tells us these things to, to let us know if God can be with them, God can be with us, God can be with you and me. And that's the theme and that's the heart of almost all of the writing of the Old Testament that God is present with us. A word that theologians used to de- use to describe this act of God, which is kind of a counterpoint to transcendence, is the word eminence. The idea of eminence is that God is continually, actively present with us. It's very similar to the idea of omnipresence with a little important nuance of difference. Omnipresence is a spatial concept that God is everywhere. Eminence means that God is everywhere active. God sees, God knows, God cares, God works. The psalmist says, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. Wherever I go, God, you're there. Now, some religions believe in a God who is only eminent. He's not transcendent. That's called pantheism. This is the pagan religion of the ancient world where people would worship the earth or the sun or the moon. But the writer of Genesis is saying, and you have to understand this is unprecedented. This has never been said before to the human race that God has and is eminent. This is a new revelation, a new understanding. It's a new normal. The transcendent God who existed before time, who was in the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth, is the same God, is this eminent God who's here right now today and meeting with us right here. And is concerned about us. Just as he was concerned about all the nomads and the servants of Eliezer and all of their kids' marriages. He's the God, Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the God who is next to you right now. No, not the person next to you, but sitting with you in the presence. This transcendent God is watching and caring. And I believe that our assignment today is going to have to do with the eminence of this God. This is the new normal that most people don't know. And it takes transitions to shake us up, to get us back to the new normal. That's what happens in transitions Something happens in our life. Cancer comes. And we never recover. We never go back. It's all different now. And whatever was is gone and there's a new normal. Divorce happens. We don't go back. There's a different relationship with my kids. There's a different relationship with my former relatives. And all of a sudden there's a new normal. But part of it is bringing us into the fact of something that should have been normal a long time in our lives. And we should have realized a long time ago that God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He is always with us. And when we went through all the garbage, God was there right with us. We sang a song up here that reflected, or at least our leader said, 
that it is like with God is with us and He's very present, we like that. And when He's far away, we don't like that. The truth of it is God is never far away. We may feel that, but the normal, the real normal, is that He's not. God's watching over Abraham. He's watching over Isaac. He's watching over Jacob. Isaac give birth, gives birth to two sons. One of them is called Jacob. And I want to turn to that story today because I want you to see the transition now between Isaac and Jacob. It's an amazing story because Jacob always refers to the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He never refers to God as his God. That's going to come in this story. That's going to be the revelation for, for Jacob. That it's no longer the God of my fathers. It's my God. Let me talk to you for a minute. Teenager, if you're out there today. College student, if you're out there today. I know maybe mom and dad dragged you to the service today because that was part of the vacation expectation. I'm paying for the vacation. You're going to church. Okay. <laughs> Let me talk to you for a moment today. I know that it may be mom's God. I know it may be the God of your father, the God of your grandfather. But when the new normal comes, when you recognize that it is my God and I belong to him, that's when real normality begins. In Genesis 25, we read about this guy, Jacob. He's kind of a con artist, kind of a scammer, always looking for the angle. And he comes that way right out of the womb. In fact, in verse 24 of 25, it says, When the time came for Rebekah to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was, was, was red, it says. His whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand, grasping Esau's heel. His, so they named him Jacob, which literally meant to grasp the heel. But metaphorically, it means deceiver. And that's Jacob's character. By the time we get to verse 27, the boys grew up, and Esau became a skilled hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. He's kind of an inside guy. Isaac, who had a taste for the wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So now you've got a little tension going on in the family. This is Pop's favorite kid. This is Mom's favorite kid. Not a great thing. You're kind of already seeing the duct tape come out in terms of keeping this family together. Here's the family. Jacob's dad, Isaac, dotes on his brother Esau. Esau is the jock. He's the man's man. But he's not the brightest light bulb on the chandelier, if you know what I mean. And he's got some serious body hair. His mother, Rebecca, favors Jacob. You have a whole messed up family dynamic here. The whole family just feels a bit duct taped together and she helps Jacob trick his dad into getting the family blessing. She teaches how to be Jacob the deceiver. So God decides that Jacob is going to have to go to character school. Life is going to get very hard for Jacob. He's going to have to travel a long time away from home, but God wants Jacob to know that he doesn't mean that he's going to be abandoned. When God takes you to character school, He doesn't mean that He's giving up and say, okay, you go over there, get out of my presence, and I hope you learn your lesson. No, God's with you. Many times we feel that when we sin, God leaves. He doesn't. By the time we get to Genesis 28, Jacob now has left home. He's really fleeing away from his brother Esau, who is so mad at Jacob for deceiving him. 
And Esau tells his dad, I'm going to kill my brother. So Jacob is running away from home. And in 28, he has this vision. This is Jacob now. This is one of the most important visions of the Old Testament. And Jacob comes to see that God is present with him. In chapter 28, verse 10, around verse 13, it says, I am the Lord. He's speaking to Jacob. The God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Well, Jacob gets up from the sleep and he's fired up. And he says, well, surely the Lord is in this place. This place is awesome. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so even the rock that he was laying on, he puts it down as a kind of an altar and makes a vow saying, if God will be with me and I will watch over and will watch over me on this journey that I am taking, I will, I will give my, me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I may return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. First time in Scripture that word appears. Jacob finally says, hmm, not just Pop's dad, not just Pop's God, not Chris' grandfather's dad, he now will be my God. Let me tell you something, when that happens in a transition, if that's what God brings about for you in a transition, whether it's sending you to character school, or you go through some kind of disease, or you've gone through some transition in your life, but he brings you to the fact where it's no longer the God of my father, and my grandfather, and my grandmother, it is my God, you're on your way to understanding the new normal. You're understanding that the eminence of God, the presence of God, will never leave you. That's unbelievable. Let me review this for a moment regarding Jacob. Stole the birthright from his brother Esau and the blessing. Number two, the birthright was not total manipulation because an offer was made on the part of Jacob to Esau for it. (laughs) He suckered him out of it for a bowl of stew. Number three, Esau vows revenge, murder, Number four, the mother begs Jacob to flee. Number five, Jacob says, good advice, I'm out of here. Number six, Jacob goes to Padam Aram to find a wife. Number seven, Esau marries a Hittite woman out of rebellion. Number eight, Jacob stops at the site called Luz, which after his evening dreams he now calls Bethel, the house of God. Can you get, can you get the idea of duct tape here? <laughs> We're trying to patch this up the best we can. And we talk, about, we talk about transition. Oftentimes, going through transition is not in our bucket list of words, is it? <laughs> We'd rather have that be an elective than, than a required subject in our life. This is an unfolding drama. One that could rate up there with Days of Our Life or that other famous sequel called As the Stomach Turns. The real issue here is that Jacob was an early victim of manipulation and deceit. And could have stayed in a victimizing role, but he didn't. But as our story unfolds, Jacob will emerge as one of the great patriarchs of Israel and one of the great patriarchs of the faith. Isn't that amazing that God takes you and me? The organization to which I belong to, the denomination, Converge Worldwide, we're, I gotta tell you, sometimes we're duct taped together, you know. Not every organization's perfect, not every business is, not every family is. We put patches here. We run it. 
But let me just share with you for a second what a little bit of this duct tape organization's done. Right now, we have a goal within the next three years to plant 367 churches. As of today, in the first year of that three-year thing, we've now seen 184 new congregations start. I think that's fantastic. Just for a bunch of duct tape guys trying to do it. We've seen, we've seen seven new churches planted abroad. Five new pastors in the funnel. Going to different international cities of the world because there's going to be, it's going to be done in English. Now let me scale it back from a global to a local. Let me talk about this little church right here at Dillon Community. The one that some of you are going to pray for because you got a water bottle today. I want one of those water bottles. This little church at Dillon, I don't, I, I don't have the exact figures, but Mark, thousands of people in this Summit County have been helped through, that, through the benevolence offering, haven't they? As long as he's not in his head, I'm keeping going here. We've fed people with kind of like meals on wheels or whatever we call that thing. Thousands of people have been fed, kept from starving. And at times, we look at our organization, and as much as we'd like to say, it's a real comprehensive system in our church. Ah, come on, let's just be honest. Sometimes we feel like we're duct taped together, but we're making a difference. Jacob did too. Jacob's an interesting group of people and comes from one. He's promised verses, uh, promised according to these verses, the gift of the land, the promise of prosperity, and the blessing to all nations. In a remarkably similar fashion, the viewpoint of both chapters turns to the future exile of Abraham's descendants and the promise of the return. Abraham's vision looked forward to the sojourn of God's people. In both cases, the promise was that God would not forsake them and would return them to the land. And Jacob's vision anticipated the events that were to come in the next several chapters. The purpose then of the account of Jacob's dream, when he dreamt about the ladder going up and down from heaven, was the fact that, the, that all of the things is that God was not, or Jacob was not only connected to heaven, heaven was connected to Jacob. Well, now Jacob is going to learn another lesson. Not only did he have this dream of the ladder and the angels descending and ascending, but there's one particular episode in Jacob's life I want to call attention to today as we wind this up. And that is the chapter 32 when he wrestles with the angel. This is an amazing kind of chapter here. And I'm going to pick it up in, I believe it's verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was, was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, Listen to this. I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and you have overcome. In one text it says, You are a person of great faith. Compare that to Peter who walked on the water for just a few seconds. And when he sank, Jesus said, O man of what? Little faith. Now, when you're wrestling with God and you hang on, notice wrestling is not fighting with God. You're not boxing with God. You're wrestling with God. You're hanging on. You're clinging 
And he said, I'm never letting you go. One of the examples of great faith is that we hang on, even though sometimes we think it's us hanging on to God, it's really God hanging on to us. And the angel says, oh, man of great faith. The first thing I want you to see in this transition that proved well for Jacob is that he intersects with human life. And in this lesson, he forms a connection. He forms a connection. Angels of God, in the first part, when they were ascending and descending, in chapter 28, verse 12, it says, This is the kingdom of heaven, intersecting with earth, intersecting with human life. God is present. Oh, my goodness. This is God speaking to Jacob now. And this is one of the most fundamental visions that any human can ever have. Isn't it interesting that just four chapters later, he wrestles with the angel. And he said that, The connection is true. It never stops. It's not just dependent on me that I'm connected to heaven. Heaven is connected to me. My grip is not so good now these days. I was uh, playing uh, golf with the Monday guys. Some of you are out there and you haven't uh, come over over to Copper Creek on Monday. You talk about a duct tape bunch of guys, well, we're it. We're it. We, we love golf, and we love each other, and we love to have fun. And... But one of the things is that, you know, I noticed that when I was standing on that tee box, and I tried to grab my club, and I thought, hmm, yep, I am way over 60. Yep, can't quite grip that baby as tight as I used to. And then I thought about what I'm going to preach this Sunday, and I thought... Jacob must have really hung on all night to the point where the angel said, okay, enough. Let me go. Jacob says, no way. Not till you bless me. How many of us would wrestle with God through the night in prayer? How many of us would wrestle with God until we sense God's presence that he's not afar off? How many of us are willing to do business with God that way? God says it's an example of great faith. Secondly, he intersects with human life. He forms a protection. In 28, he says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land. I'll never leave you until I have done what I have promised. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, and look at this statement, surely the Lord is in this place. In chapter 32, he says to Jacob, tell me your name. And, and, and Jacob replies, why, or, uh, Jacob says to the angel, tell me your name. And, but the angel says, why do you ask my name? And Jacob so winds up in verse 30 saying, I'm going to call this place Peniel. It is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket, because the socket of Jacob's hips was touched near the tendon. We have an Orthodox Jew that lives down the block from me. About two years ago, I asked Joe and Augie this question. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. We don't eat that part of the meat. You know, Jacob limped all his life. He never really got over that wrestling match. 
I think when God puts us through transitions and He brings us to what's called the new normal, which should have been normal from the very beginning, I think some of us do never lose our limp sometimes. It's a constant reminder that there's a new normal. (laughs) That God is with us and He'll never leave us and He'll never forsake us. And then finally, Jacob learns that not only is there a connection, not only does he understand there's a protection, but thirdly, he forms a recollection. In chapter 28, early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar. Why? So he'd never forget. He actually poured oil on top of it and called that place Bethel. Meaning the house of God. This is where God is present. Where is the house of God for you today? Where is God present in your life today? Everywhere, right here. You know what I'd like you to do this week? I'd like to give you an assignment. He's not a great friend, but he's an acquaintance of mine. I met years and years ago. His name was David Maines. He and his wife Karen had a, had a radio show for years. They introduced a little game to family called I spy. (laughs) And the idea was that they would give an assignment kind of like at the breakfast table and say, oh, kids, okay, kids, today we're going to go out and we're going to just kind of keep our radar up, our antenna up, our eyes open, our ears open, and let's see where God is working. And tonight at the dinner table, when you come back, tell us about where you saw God today. Well, there were times where those kids would just be frothing at the mouth, needed to be fairly led away. They were ready to go. This is going to be good stuff. Where was God working Because up to that point, they hadn't seen God working. The young son Jonah had been bullied on the playground. That obviously wasn't God. Sister had been teased about her outfit at school. That certainly wasn't about God. But there was a whole new idea of fresh eyes going about. That God was present. That night at the dinner table, David said it was amazing how many stories of when we're willing to look and to see how God is really present and is working. I'd like to give you that assignment this week. I'd like to give it to you and your families. There won't be any report on next Sunday morning, but why not at the dinner table while you're on vacation or if you live here permanently in Summit County, why not take the opportunity tonight to debrief as a family and say, you know what, I saw God working today. Let me tell you, I, I want to play the I spy game. I spied God working today. Well, this is the beginning of Jacob's transformation. In chapter 29, he goes on to Haran, his grandfather Abraham, Abraham's old town. Jacob has to go from Canaan hundreds of miles to Haran. Finds his uncle Laban. Now in Laban, Jacob meets his match. Laban is like the king of the con artists. You thought Jacob was good, Laban's better. For over 14 years, Jacob goes to character school. Jacob the deceiver meets Laban and learns about the pain of deception and, and begins to change. And Laban makes him marry one of his other daughters. He tricks him. Doesn't give him the woman he wants. Finally decides to return home and face his brother Esau and says, you know, I think I'm ready now. I say this because many times I think we live in a kind of practical, many of us live in a life of practical deists. We believe that God exists, but a lot of times we act and feel as if our lives are being led by ourselves. As if we had to watch out for ourselves constantly and be on the guard. We live as as if we did not believe it's true that our transcendent God is eminent, that He's really with us. Now let me close with this thought. 
The temptations you and I face are on two levels in terms of transitions. There's human level and spiritual level. Human level temptations are those temptations that most are that are most real for those of us who 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 maybe do not know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. These are the temptations of the world and the flesh and of the devil. They are the temptation of the, of, of the writer James who writes, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. We certainly face those temptations as Christians, but they are not the deeper level issues for most of us who call Christ our Lord. No, we face some spiritual temptations. And those temptations that we face have become re, <laughs> cause us uh, to come, become reborn at times, I think. By regeneration, we are lifted to another realm where there are temptations that Jesus faced. By regeneration, the Son of God is formed in us, and in our physical life, He has, he has the same setting that He had on earth. Satan in this level does not tempt us to do wrong things. Rather, he tempts us in order to make us lose what God put in us by regeneration. That is to say, the possibility of being of no value to God. Let me just tell you this morning, if you're a Christ follower, you are extremely valuable to God. Your worth comes from that. Not your self-image. Your worth comes from God. Too many men, too many women try to take their self-worth from their business or how good a leader they are or the family or the car they drive or how big a house they have. Self-worth can only from, come from God. Self-image, yes, we sometimes see that in terms of comparing ourselves to one another. But self-worth is at the deepest part of everybody's issue. It's true that the Lord is with us in our temptations, but the real question are we going with Him in His temptations? When God shifts the circumstances of our lives, are we going with Him? When the idea of our worth of this world diminishes, are we going with Him? When God allows pain in our life, are we going with Him? When Satan says we're of no worth to anyone, are we going to go with Him or are we going to go with the enemy? These are the temptations we face as reborn creations of God. Please do not think the only thing you face is lust or greed or envy or sex, or manipulation. You face something a whole lot higher, deeper, and more profound. And Jacob was about to learn this. That's what the wrestling match was all about. Don't miss that in the sermon. This is the first initial course in character college he had to learn about the presence and eminence of God. So here's, here's what I say that I think will be of help to you and value this week. As you do the I spy game, just remember Jacob's ladder and remember Jacob's wrestling. You're connected to earth to heaven, and more importantly, heaven is connected to you. You think DSL and Comcast are great? <laughs> the connection never gets broken with God. I'll give you a few things you can look at for God to do as you hunt for Him tonight and tomorrow and this week. Maybe it'll come. You're recognizing God's presence in a concrete answer to some prayer. Maybe it'll come in the form of prompting. You know, God prompted Jacob to return home and reconcile with Esau. We need to listen to that quiet little voice inside us that prompts us from day to day. It is God's way of showing that He's never left us and never forsaken us. When He does, just stop for a minute and say, God, thank You for being with me. Help me now as I trust in You to follow through with the courage to follow that prompting. Maybe it'll come in the form of unexpected resources. Just as God provided Joseph with amazing resources to save people during a famine in Egypt. Maybe God is going to do that for you. Maybe some gifts will come your way. Time, energy, financial gifts that you can use for somebody else.
I remember we were doing a capital campaign at one of the churches that I was at. I had been asked to come in and help raise $8 million for their new facility. And during that time, we talked about the fact that, you know, the real miracle is when you you say before God and, and you pray as a family and say, God, we believe that this is the amount you want us to give. We don't know where all that's coming from, but that's where we want to see the miracle. And I remember this one lady in our church. She was a single mom. She had lost her job. She had no money. She had run out of unemployment. And her daughter was sick with a high fever. And she, didn't, she only had $3 in her wallet. She didn't have enough money for the, for the medicine. And so uh, she began to pray. And, and she went down to the grocery store with these $3 to buy some little, a little small bottle of baby aspirin that she maybe could get her daughter through through the night. And as she was going in, the daughter was with her, and she said to mom, she said, Mommy, I'm so thirsty, I'm so hot, can I have one of those, those cheap pops in the machine? I think it's called Select, and it's at the grocery store, and it costs a quarter, and it is the worst soda that in captivity. And she put a quarter in, and it ate her quarter, and no pop. Now it was like adding insult to injury. She got the baby aspirin, went home. That morning, someone said that they had paid for the prescription and she should go down and get it. So she went back to that same grocery store and as she's going by that pot machine, she glares at the pot machine. Says something about its eternal destiny. And, and then she notices down below a piece of green paper. And she picks it up and it's a $100 bill. Now, rewind the tape for a moment because... Two weeks ago, when we made the pledges for the capital campaign, she had promised that over the next three years, she would give $100 to the campaign. I know that that's not going to make a whole lot of difference in a million-dollar campaign, but it was going to make a whole lot of difference to this lady. She picks up the $100 bill, and the first thing she says, now we can get some food. (laughs) You pay a couple bills. And she said, as she gave this testimony in front of all those people in the church, she said, God kind of just spoke to her right then and said, no, bozo, (laughs) that's the hundred bucks that I was providing as a miracle for the campaign. She said, I learned something that day that I never learned before, that God is with me. He is eminent. He knows my need. He knows my name. He knows every hair on the count of the every hair on my head. Maybe it'll come in the form of an unexpected outcome. Unusual circumstances are timing. Just like when Joseph was sold into slavery and it looked like the end, but God used it to fulfill his purpose. So your assignment this week, in addition to reading through the scripture, is is in Scripture and in your life. You do what Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob did. You look for God. I want to encourage you, if you're a small group leader, to talk about this with your people in the small group this week. Ask them how the I spy or the God hunt is going this week. (laughs) Tell about it with your families. And if you're in a family, tell your children, your spouse, where do you see God? Transitions come to shake us up. We oftentimes never go back to the way it was because God brings transition in our lives to see the new normal. May God bless you and give you a solid week. Mark is going to come now. He's going to 
give us a chance to do a little bit of help in that benevolence offering. But I want to tell you, with our organization sometimes feeling like we've been duct taped together, I was just thinking out loud, if we all threw in 10 bucks today, if we could afford to throw in 10 bucks per person, it would feed probably close to 1,000 people here in Summit County. We could see God working in a special way. I'm not asking you to do it, not forcing you to do it, but I just kind of tried to do the math a little bit here today, and I thought, yeah, what the heck? Probably won't make a big difference. It might mean, okay, this week I won't be able to afford two lattes. Because <laughs> you know Starbucks has been renamed now to four bucks. <laughs> and so a couple lattes for the kingdom. Think about that, because I think that's so powerful. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then Mark's going to come. God bless you. May you see God all over the place this week. And we'll look forward to next week when we wind up our series on the great transition of the faith. And by the way, if you're still here in two weeks, we're going to do a series that's going to go five weeks, and it's called When God Rocks Your World. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to want to miss that series. Let's pray. Lord, thanks again for today. You're a gracious God. You worked in the life of Abraham, then you passed it off to Isaac, and you passed it off to Jacob. I'm so thankful that Jacob said, You're not the God of just his father or his grandfather, but you're my God. May all of us say that today. If there's a person here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, maybe this little prayer might represent your life today. You're welcome to pray it with me as I pray out loud. And you can know the great adventure of knowing Christ today. Lord Jesus Christ, come into my life right now. Thank you for dying for me. Make me the person you want me to be. Forgive my sin. And bring me into the awareness of knowing you. Into the new normal. I pray this. Lord, you you hear the prayers of our hearts. There are many here today who are believers. And we might pray, Lord, help me to understand my battles are not just earthly battles. They are really spiritual battles. I've been fighting this week with feeling like I'm not much worth to God. May I recommit my trust to you. That I truly am worthy to you because of what you've done for me. Now give us a good week. And as we leave today in this offering, may we take just a moment to, uh, I don't know, reach in, grab a couple of bucks at least and put it in the plate because there's some folks that are unfortunate and can't afford this. We can feed them and give them a cup of cold water in Christ's name. Bless our week as we look for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.